From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, a virtual edition of Wharton Moneyball, the third in a series. We'll be doing this virtually for the foreseeable future. The whole crew is here, coming to you from Central Texas, Center City, Philadelphia, and the main line in Pennsylvania. We are going to be here for the next hour, going to talk a little bit of COVID-19, going to talk sports in the age of COVID-19. Glad to have you. Glad to have you every time we do this, and we're going to be doing it on a weekly basis for a little while. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Adi, Eric, Shane, how are you guys doing? Doing well. No change. Haven't left my house much. Imagine that. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty much, it's, it's good for routines, Adi. It's good for routines. This is one of our routines. I'm curious what has caught your guys' eye. We usually ask about the world of sports, but let's ask first, before we turn to sports, what's caught your eye in the world of COVID-19? Well, the, the one thing I was wondering how long it would take either for this to be empirically true or for them to find this out. I've always been a big believer. See, let me just say in marketing, we get a lot of people running experiments, what I call on-off experiments. Like what happens if I have this treatment or I don't have the treatment? And I just don't believe the world tends to be a binary on-off kind of thing. So I was waiting to find out how long it would take for them to find that there's really a dose-response relationship between the amount of exposure to COVID and the actual severity at which you get the illness. And they just came out with a study today, actually it came out of the University of Pennsylvania, that talked about this dose-response relationship. And I just found that interesting because that's what I was expecting, but I hadn't heard any real discussion about it. What did you learn? Say more. Well, it, it's exactly what I learned is that there is, at the more you're exposed to it, um, the more severe are the actual uh, results, are the effect on you. And so that's even controlling, of course, for other factors that they know are directly related, like age or comorbidities, mm-hmm. et cetera. So does this, do they use the term viral load? Because I asked some docs one time, what does it, do, do people who are kind of in the middle of it and getting it from multiple people, is it, do they do they get hit worse? And they said, yes, it's this notion of viral load. Is that yeah, related to what you're talking about? It's exactly related. And I think it's, it's on both sides, which is um, they've, for about a week or so, they've talked about does the viral load you get exposed to also affect the amount of immunity you have? So now they're talking about, I'll call it both the input side and the output side. I didn't, I didn't follow what you meant there. What's the, what, well, I mean, by the fact is, so the more I get, if I get exposed with a heavy viral load, I'm more likely to get sick. That, that's what they reported on today, but I may also have a higher level of immunity. If you don't believe oh, that immunity is also right. bi- binary, there's no reason viral load couldn't actually have an impact on both directions. Okay, okay. Yeah, I've also done some, found out some really interesting new things in this last week. Um, I had been predicting based on, based on positive rates of tests and death rates in New York that when they finally get around to doing serology tests to measure antibodies, you'd find over a million New Yorkers. Well, they went and did that, and they re-upped that to about two and a half million New Yorkers, which is a shocker of a result. And it's not like uh, it's a small percentage. They're estimating over 20% of New Yorkers have been exposed at some level, enough to generate antibodies. I don't know whether it's a lot of viral load or a small one, but enough to generate antibodies. And actually does match with the experiences that some of the people, like family members, have described in New York City, saying that so many of them had minor colds, um, various different short length 
uh, un almost unnoticeable illnesses in early March, which is where all the missing cases are going. And that does match with another test uh, came out of Harvard in Chicago to kind of give you a framework for estimating percentages based on based on sample frequencies of antibodies. And some of the data that they were using indicates that there is, particularly in the young population, infection rate is about the same, but subclinical rates, meaning not showing any symptoms, is about 95% in the 20 and under group. In other right. words, that group just doesn't show any illness. And then it gets, and then it progresses uh, uh, smaller as you get older. So the time you get into your 40s and 50s, you're at about 50% probability of showing any symptoms. And then by the oh, time you're 75, it's about 75% show symptoms. And that explains where all the missing um, cases are in New York City. Just want to clarify a couple, you were saying a couple of things. You were saying this, this last thing you said, which is something about how the, the percentage of asymptomatic cases varies as a function. Yeah. Subclinical. Yeah. Um, varies as a function of age and it varies strongly as a function of age. You're saying 95% of those in the twenties, don't show any symptoms. What, Nothing. That, that goes down to 50% above. But you st I want to go back to your first observation. And, that, and, and I want to note that you, you, know, you stepped out into the epidemiology space and made a prediction that yep. about a million New Yorkers would have been exposed. And it turns out that it's more like two or two and a half. So can you say something? Two questions. And this, I'm just trying to clarify here before we move on. Why would your prediction have been off by that much? Like, what, what did you learn about what was wrong about your model or what the, how the world is different or whatever? And two, and maybe more importantly, what, what do we generalize from this? New York City, to some extent, is kind of unique, right, if only because of density. So to what extent can we generalize about what we'd expect to see in other populations? Well, I don't think we can generalize too well because there are few places as dense as New York City and that really let it go unchecked for as long as New York did. So there are dense places like Singapore, but they were on it so much faster. I was in and around New York in end of February, early March, both for a flu into Newark in early March. And I was in, I was at, at a sports analytics conference we ran at the end of February. And the, the mayor was talking about going out and on the town, go to the theater, go to the, and, and this did not stop until about May, 10, May, March 10th. So if there are another place in the world as dense and as crowded as New York that kind of let it run, we're not going to see it. But what's interesting about it is, is, um, and I think one of the reasons why my model was a little on the low side is I think the death rate in New York is missing a lot of dead people. And that, and that even though the death rate is hovered around 5% in New York, it's probably a lot, well, higher and lower. Higher because there's so many uncounted people because they either died at home or died in nursing homes and weren't counted as, the, as COVID deaths. Um, and so many people are not included in the, in the infection list because they never got tested. So uh, that's something I definitely want to come back to, but let's hear from Eric and Shane first. Well, I just want to comment on two things Adi said. Uh, one is that what you're describing is actually, you could argue, the worst case scenario for the first part of what you said, because I haven't heard anything to suggest that people that are asymptomatic are any less carriers or any less people that can actually give it to other people. So that's a big concern. It would be fine if I was asymptomatic, but that also meant that I could give it to somebody, but that's not, I haven't heard anything to suggest well, that. Well, you can give it. No, no, you know, I know that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And the second thing is Yale just came out with a study today, which I read, which actually talked about the number of uncounted deaths, but also not just the home deaths, the nursing home deaths, et cetera, but the number of deaths they haven't even yet been able, but they will be able to attribute to the actual coronavirus as well. So it was a large study out of Yale today that, that discussed exactly this issue. 
So I, I love this question. It seems like a very important question. I want to come back to it in, in one second, but real quickly, one point of clarification. I just saw some modeling where that the, the contagiousness of asymptomatic patients is a parameter in the model. And the value they chose was 0.46. This is from an epidemiologist. And so this is an uncertainty and everyone says it's an uncertainty, but at least that modeler, there's a University of Texas epidemiologist, is using about half, that the asymptomatic folks are about half as contagious. It's still very contagious, but just, just one more input to the models. Shane. Well, I, know, I was going to just kind of come back to this sort of like to the extent that there's variation in, in, in kind of exposure. It is, I mean, returning to kind of Eric's point from before, it's going to be interesting to sort of see how not only the do- dose response of like actual symptoms, but like whether or not immunity is, is, is going to like, so that two, are those two and a half million New Yorkers now immune to that disease? Or are the ones that are asymptomatic less likely to have actually developed immunity? And I, you know, I think the real answer we're going to get out of this is, is, is involves like more kind of actual medical experimentation than, you know, a lot of this uh, observational study stuff. And I mean, the, the one kind of thing that caught my eye, at least over the last week, is just a discussion with friends that they are, they are considering um, softening the standards or, or at least considering doing actual challenge trials in the United States with what vaccines. What is a challenge trial? It's one where you actually, you know, usually with a vaccine trial, they will uh, give, if somebody's giving either treatment or control, uh, they'll just be kind of sent out in the population to see if there's overall differences in rates of uh, uh, infection. But challenge trials where they would actually expose um, anybody oh. in the trial to high oh, levels of COVID. Oh, interesting. Jeez. Okay. Which is not something... Um, uh, if it's done, it'll probably not be done in America first, but it, it, it's something where at least the, I mean, the medical establishment is at least considering here. The type of uh, heterogeneity that Adi talked about in the chain just followed up with is wonderful because I talk about this a lot in my core marketing class where we talk about diffusion models. And the most standard one, as I think I've mentioned before on the show, is something called the BAS model, which is just at the hazard rate, which means the instantaneous probability you're going to get the disease given you haven't already. The most common model that people in marketing fit is just, it's just a function of F of T, which is the cumulative number in the population, but it doesn't reflect any heterogeneity. It doesn't reflect that, for example, it's what we also call an equal node network model, where every node is connected to every other node, and every other node is equally influential, and we know that's not true. And so exactly the 0.46 that you mentioned, Cade, and all the other forms of heterogeneity, this is, I'm so happy when I get physically back in the classroom or virtually with students, because I'm going to talk exactly about how we can talk about COVID diffusion and related to product diffusion and what we call in-groups and out-groups and who affects each other. Yeah. Amazing. There's a, the heterogeneity here is in almost every aspect of this this disease and the way we model it, starting from viral load, which tells you how the contagiousness, right? So by the way, viral load has always been used to create vaccines. So smallpox vaccines were developed by giving very, very small amounts of an active virus to, to, to kids and hoping that they survive it. And, and it turns out that 99 out of 100 times they do. And then guess what? It works. But this is everything interacts. The amount of social distancing that we're using depends on your age, your contagiousness, your viral load. The, the, the doctor who are most exposed, they're the ones who are in, in the front lines. They also have the most PPE, right? So that kind of works. In, in, and then and there are older members of society, we're now finally learning, we need to protect them at a much greater degree than, than we, we've done in the past. So I, I'm, that's one of the reasons why I think our models are really hard to, to get any value out of them to make forecasts going into the future. 
Well, that there are, there are there are folks who are trying to consider the the heterogeneity of the, of the of the regional demographics when they're forecasting loads on hospital systems. So, even our University of Pennsylvania, who built a system, an interactive system for hospital administrators to use to play with the parameters in their region to forecast um, to forecast demand, heavily turns on demographics. And I've seen also some more epidemiologists who are looking at local forecast, tailoring that to the demographics, you know, people, locales with heavier senior folks are gonna be hit harder clearly. And they're, some, of the, some folks are baking that into the models. What I love about your discussion, Kate, is it actually brings out an interesting policy type of, ex, of thought experiment. So do you, let's say you had a finite amount of PPE, that's not a big assumption, it's true. Do you give it to people that are more likely to be heavily exposed or give it to people that are more likely to be heavily affected given they're exposed. And it's not obvious which way the trade-off should go. And so it's an interesting thing because it gets back to Adi's point. You know, there may be lots of people like students, which you talked about, who they have a high likelihood of being exposed if you put them in a dorm. But there's, that doesn't mean you should give it to them because they have very low likelihood of getting affected. So to me, just from a purely academic point of view, I love the, I'll call it mathematical tension between, I'll call it exposure probability or dosage and the impact of it. And it's not obvious where the optimal allocation is. The other thing that's very interesting in terms of turning our attention now, as I think we are starting to do, which is forecasting the future and trying to tailor our opening strategies relative to what we know, is that we are not going to make the same mistakes in the past going forward, at least hopefully. And it's and and that I'll could take really the over. Yeah. We do know we do know things that we didn't know before, right? Mm-hmm. So we I, I think it's pretty clear that we didn't do a good job of protecting our nursing facilities and our personal care facilities. And, and not only to say that we didn't do a good job is, is, is terrible. We did a horrible job. And if you just look at the numbers, and it, it's so many, two-thirds of the deaths in Pennsylvania have been in, in nursing and, pens, and personal care facilities. Almost everybody that I know personally who's died from this, and, and I have a larger circle because of my wife's role as a congregational rabbi, has been in nursing and personal care facilities. And even people who have not been di- dying or sick are suffering because they're in prison. Um, they cannot leave their room and people cannot enter them. And this is taking a toll. And if we could give them a way to, to go out comfortably, maybe with the right PPE so they can do this, um, and we can guard the doors and make sure that they, they do not get infected because they will, they will get infected and they will die. Um, we have to manage this differently than we've done in the past. And maybe we, have lear- we can learn some lessons, at least for this critical and easily and highly vulnerable population. This is Wharton Moneyball, a virtual edition coming to you from Center City, Philadelphia, the main line of Philadelphia, and Central Texas. One hour edition. We're going to do these for the next couple of weeks, and we'll start slowly folding in some interviews, but glad to have you with us today. A couple of the quick things that have caught my eye before we move on to the world of sports. You guys mentioned these un- unknown, unidentified fatalities related to COVID-19, a methodology that's beginning to gain traction that I thought makes a lot of sense to us as statisticians is this excess mortalities method that folks are using. There's a, there's, a, there's a very interesting piece in the Financial Times. They look at locations around the world and they see these spikes in mortality relative to historical trends. Yeah, that was the Yale study I was referring to today that I read that did the exact same thing. Right, right. And it's a, it's a great way because deaths in general are reported well, just maybe not, not, not well identified when they come because of COVID-19. And they're finding, 
I mean, the headline of the FT article is something like COVID-19 deaths might be 60, 60% higher than reported, which I think that's probably a little bit high relative to what they reported in the article. But, and it's going to vary by location distinctly. But regardless, it looks significantly higher. But this is, a, I think it's a real nice example of a statistical model giving insight to a really hard problem. Yeah, I was just going to comment on, you know, this is another thing that we teach our students all the time. Like one of the things I teach in my uh, marketing core class are what we called a decompositional model. So for example, decomposing total sales, I'll replace the word sales with deaths if you'd like, into trial and repeat sales, first time versus aggregate purchasing, where in general, you don't observe that decomposition. So you have to estimate mathematically the decomposition between trial and repeat. Now, we're not in a trial and repeat setting here because you can only die once. You can't repeat die. But it's exactly this same type of decomposition where we basically model what would happen to first-time buyers and call the residual the repeat amount that's very similar in spirit to the type of, if you'd like, we observe total deaths very easily, but we don't know what the causes of those deaths are. So I love the fact that this type of thought processes and methodology are being brought to this problem and many problems. Because the answer is you really do care. Matter of fact, people say, well, people die, who cares how they die? No, we care a lot about how they die. And this decomposition of deaths really matters for all the biases that Adi mentioned about if we have the death rate wrong, and if we have the number of people infected wrong, then all these parameters are gonna be wrong and all our projections are gonna be wrong. And, and policy making going forward as a result of the models. Policy so, is actually huge. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you got you to have the data. This is, I mean, people are talking about this around testing as well. One last observation that just caught my eye recently, especially as states start opening up. I mean, I'm down here in Texas, and as we're taping, the governor is making an announcement at a press conference that beginning Friday, May 1st, um, some of these restrictions are relaxed. So Texas is going to begin to open. That there, there's talk of dashboards. So Carnegie Mellon, for example, has a consortium that's helping policymakers with the dashboard. But the concern is the dashboards are, you know, hugely lagging indicators for the most part. What you need to know are, are what's going on real time that's going to create additional, um, in, additional infections. And, and the nice thing about technology these days is that these data are available. There are people who aggregate mobile phone data and tracking data, and can report levels of activity down to finer than the county level, and there are reports available for, 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 for locales. How much different is it now than last week or back when life was normal or a year ago or whatever you want to use? And they are reporting this, and, and I think increasingly policymakers will use these data, but they need to be using these data. I, I kind of wish in, that Philadelphia would have billboards that showed everybody whether they're succeeding at social distancing. And, and, to, and as they open up, we can do this well or we can do this poorly, have metrics that show not two weeks from now the infection count or three weeks from now the mortality count, show real time what the consequence is of everybody's behavior. And those are available. That kind of information is available with, with mobile phone tracking data that's anonymized and, and safe in that way, privacy safe. But I, some folks are using this. We need more folks using this. It's, it's available now. And, and maybe we can do some modeling with these data, but at least when you get these data in front of decision makers. I just, you know, I, I agree. I think it would be really, uh, really amazing uh, to have a model that sort of basically said, based on current social distancing, kind of like these current social distancing measures, here's what infection rates will be look like two weeks from now, whenever that kind of does translate into actual infection rate. 
It's just, I mean, all the kind of parameters that go into that, those models are incredibly hard to construct in real time with the data that we currently have, similar to the sort of the infection models that we're working with. And so it's an ongoing challenge. I think we can be, as modelers, we can be like too concerned about getting the parameters just right. I mean, I would suggest that mere feedback, this is a place where mere feedback would be helpful. Again, the billboard that says that, you know, this organization is reporting how much contact we're seeing by mobile phones, like proximity, people in close yeah. proximity relative to where it was. And what we're going to see is there's been this big dip. I mean, massive dip. People have dropped like 90% less interaction than there used to be. And now we're going to start trickling back up and just giving that information and letting people know this is the battle we're fighting. We don't know exactly how it translates into infections, but it's going to translate. And over time, we're going to learn exactly how. But for right now, just merely providing that feedback, people do respond to feedback. I actually would love to see something that's really more in our wheelhouse in terms of recommendation. I've been tracking the data as best as I can. And one of the things that you notice immediately is that the numbers are constantly changing from day to day and they back, backdate them. And that's because of laboratory delay and delays in aggregation and delays in reporting. So here in Philly, they're constantly changing the, the dates, the, the quantities back up to 10 days in the past as they re-update the figures. What's missed going forward, we really should create a random design that is constantly used. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's 500 tests to a day that are not, that are not delayed, that are, because that are, there is a fast version of them. You can do some of them in, 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 in an hour and others take weeks before they get processed and returned. And it's a, just a design where you have a, a, a randoming sample approach that of approximately 500 that really gives you a sense of what the of what the, the temperature, if you will, of the population and the local population is at an instantaneous level. It's not, it's not universal testing, but we know this is our bread and butter that to measure something at a population level, you don't need population counts. Well, so, you just need samples. Adi, say a little bit more about this because Germany just announced this past week, Germany is doing random testing. They lead with the story of a guy answering his door, door, door knock, answers it, and there's a person in all the lab coats and a police officer saying, That's will right. you sign up to be on this panel? And they've got a few thousand people that they're baking into this random sample. Adi, talk to us about the virtue of random and talk to us about random versus universal. What, what, why yeah, should we be okay. thinking about this random? So, so the, the, the problem, if you, we've been doing none of that. So the data that we have is just actual raw counts of whoever shows up. And we know that that's extremely biased. It's biased towards different populations. It's biased towards the sick. And it's also late. And so what, so we can eat the alternative to that is to try to test everyone. And a lot of people keep talking about universal testing and immediate testing, but that's a capacity that we don't have. So what Germany's doing, what you're describing, and I think what we should do here is to recognize that we can measure something at a, at, that's very hard to measure everyone by using a representative sample. Now, there's no way to, do, do, to create representative samples that are perfectly represented, but we use randomness for this. So we create a panel and we find a panel of people that, that are representative in certain demographic groups. And from them, we choose a random group and we don't need that lar- a large a quantity. When I teach, and Eric, you talked about teaching your classes, but the biggest confusion that I have with my students with regard to sampling is everybody believes, and I know, I know Shane ta- taught these undergraduate classes too, and this is a classic puzzle. If you're dealing with a large population, most, most, most people believe that you need a large sample to measure accurately information from it. And then when you're dealing with a smaller population, you, need, you can get away with smaller samples. And that is the greatest statistical fallacy. When you have a population of 100,000 versus a population of 10 million, you still get the same accuracy of a sample of 1,000. 
It's just the same. And, and that's, the, that's the trick. And we could use that in Philly. You can do that nationally. In Germany, I hear is doing it. That's great. And because that's a way to instantaneously get a, not perfect, but a relatively accurate and, uh, um, uh, as I said, measure of what the population is actually doing at that instant. The, part, the only part I was going to bring up was that um, I like the way that Adi phrased it at the end, but let's be clear. The, what we call in statistics the estimate he's talking about is the population or some local level rate. It doesn't tell me whether Eric Bradlow, Cade Massey, no, Shane Jensen has it. So here's the thing. I completely agree with Adi. I've been talking about it for three weeks since we started on. They, I don't understand what's taking them so long to do randomized or representative sampling, but that's still not going to help me say – Cade Massey can go out because he's been exposed and he's got immunity. Eric Bradlow doesn't. We're going to have to get to that level too. But I agree with what Adi's talking about. The first thing you want to estimate is what is the exposure? What's the mortality? What's the complication rate in an unbiased way? What, what do you guys think is going to happen at the school level? We just had an announcement from our, from our president come out, and, and we've had some other schools make some announcements. That the, the president of Purdue University is getting some real praise for an announcement he, that he's made today. Well, schools, I assume, will do something more like a universal testing. Is that safe to say? Because they can. Yeah, I mean, assuming that we have that, you know, we have tests at that scale by then, I think the university will. I think I think the university will probably just have it like the second you show up to campus, you're tested. Actually, right? they just announced uh, a study done. I think it was done at Yale New Haven and hospital. They developed a saliva test, which I don't know if you, you guys have ever been tested, but the people I know who have been tested, apparently it's like getting a, you know, a very long sword stuck up your nose. It's an extremely unpleasant act yeah. of getting tested. And it's uh, and it's, of course, involves external people. So they developed a saliva test. You just and you can mail it to the students. You just you swab yourself. You put it in a back in the in the packaging. You send it, and then that's going to work. That I think is going to be available by the time the fall arises. And I think every student is going to get one and get one of these at home in August. They'll send it back in, and then they'll tell you whether they can go. Yeah. Well, n- no, not <laughs> enough because last time I checked. Um, a student that comes on campus, let's take Penn, for example, may go to what's this thing called a bar. They may go to this thing <laughs> called a restaurant. Those people are expo- could be- expose them. So I took one on August the 15th. Yeah, you're clear to go, Mr. Bradlow. Great. Come August the 16th, I go to a bar. I get exposed to people that weren't tested. So you're going to ha- I mean, if you really want to do it, you better test people every single day before they come into the classroom. Because otherwise, who knows? I mean, someone could ha- not have it one day and then have it three days later. So that's well, not sufficient. This is going to have implications for sports as well. And more teams are talking about more leagues are talking about getting this underway. There's going to be a pretty extensive testing regimen. To, to, or to they talk it. about isolation, which is yeah. I, you, if you it's didn't have it once, I can guarantee you don't have it now because you couldn't have gotten it. That's right. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, listen, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We are virtual, but we are underway. We still have another. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, virtual edition coming to you from Center City, Philadelphia, mainline Philadelphia, and Central Texas. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. We are doing a one-hour version of this show for a few weeks before we warm back up into doing some interviews and a longer show, but we're glad to have you. We've been talking COVID-19 as we're wont to do in the first half hour. Let's roll into sports. One of the major sporting events of the year, any year is the NFL draft this year. It's the only thing going on. You guys uh, take it in. 
What'd you think? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I watched, I watched more of the draft than I usually do quite substantially more. It was, it was, it was interesting, fascinating. It was kind of, I mean, I was, you know, on, on, I was both curious as far as, you know, specifically what teams would pick what players, of course, but I was also kind of just interested in seeing how it would go as, as, as kind of a, you know, entertainment phenomenon. And I, you know, so I was kind of amazed that more didn't go wrong, to be honest. Right. I mean, they, that's a pretty yeah, complicated it was, it was a thing they pulled off, right? Process. Pretty good entertainment for being such a widespread novel thing. Kudos yeah. to those guys. Eric. Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing I look at, and it's partially because of you, Caden, because I, I'm pretty sure the first academic work I ever saw you present was on your work on different value of positions in the draft and people trading the draft. The, I have to admit, the first thing, before I even list the names of the players, is who's trading to which positions? Like, what's the value of different positions in the draft? And very interestingly, my Buccaneers were actually the first team that made a trade in the draft. They moved from 14 to 13. There were no trades up until that point, And they swapped a fourth rounder for a seventh rounder to move up one spot in the draft from 14 to 13. So the first thing, just as an overall le- level, I was surprised because everyone had talked about people jumping the Dolphins at five to get to Tua, like where the Lions at three and the Giants at four going to move out of their positions. Turns out they didn't. So I just found out. I was just waiting for, the, if you'd like, the arrival time of the first trade mm-hmm. well it was trades were down this year and we speculated that they would be because of the gms being by themselves in their homes dealing with you know phones and emails and slack and all that stuff just a tougher environment you know a lot of these guys take calls when they're on the clock a lot of trades get done most trades when they're mm-hmm. on the clock and that's just a heck of a thing to manage while you don't have people in the room evaluating the trades for you so it wasn't it was disappointing because those trades are fun but um, it wasn't terribly surprising that we saw fewer of them this year. Um, Eric, your your um, Buccaneer, they got they got that they got the tackle right. The, mm-hmm. They got the they that they got lauded for that pick right. One of the better picks. Yeah, in the first I heard round. they like, they the, they did very well. Explain well, that. They thought they might they thought he might slide. And so the one very objective way, it's not perfect, but at least it's objective way to evaluate picks is where they got the player relative to where the world expected him to go. Well, I was getting mocked. Yeah. So, yeah. so our, our friend Benjamin Robinson has, has put together some of the best machinery for aggregating mock drafts. And he ends up coming up with nice distributions and expectations for every player. And then you can see, you know, you get these examples of guys who slide. And the, the, one of the highest profiles examples from this year were the, in the first round, especially with C.D. Lamb arriving at the Cowboys doorstep at whatever it was, 17 or something. 17, they had yeah. no idea they would get take C.D. Lamb. They didn't especially need a receiver, but that guy was so far below where he was expected to go. I think he was the, a sort of I think, top 10 pick. So speaking of um, offensive tackles and models, the Giants took Andrew Thomas, number four. And according to ESPN's model for draft probability, there was zero chance that he was to get, get drafted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's part of it. And, and that ties into the Bucks layer decision that, like, you know, if, if a player, you know, whoever the Giants could have picked – you know, was a player that then fell further and got other, you know, like incentivizes other teams to draft up. Well, so explain to me how someone makes that kind of mistake. So how does a zero, what, what went wrong? There's actually five zeros in the first round, according to, to so our, our, our buddy, Josh Hernsmeyer, we kind of put this all together for us in his, on 538. And he, he reports, if you just looked at the list, there are five zero point zeros in the first round. So these were people who were drafted in positions that the model said they had zero chance of going that high. 
So, and these, just just to be clear, these this is a model, a predictive a mo model, or it's is a predictive it, model. It's, it's so, an ensemble of, of of people's mocks. I think it's mock. It's it's certainly mock informed. I love saying it's mock informed. Okay. It's mock informed is, is a good is a good. It's a good but thing, I, but it is also there's some analytics as well. So, so so I'd love to get an explanation for that, and because it it must have been some it must be something to learn from this. Well, so a couple a couple of insights to to do otherwise, you either have to draft a different player, or trade back and take the player you want to get at a later spot. So the practical matter is you have to find someone who's willing to trade back with you. But just say you have that. And you could go back five spots. And at that point in the draft, the Brian Burke model, the ESPN model you referred to, might say he would have been available with a 50% chance that he'd be available. Right. So it, it, it's really just a risk-taking. You can just model that as a, as a decision under risk. And, 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 and teams are risk-averse, especially when they're in love with the player. That's one explanation. I have one fancy explanation you'll like, Bobby. Um, and that is it's hard to learn out of this strategy. You never learn that you were wrong to take him, but you can learn that you were wrong to trade back. So you never learn, if you take him now, mm -hmm. you never get feedback that says, well, you could have taken him five picks later. It's not available to you. You never get feedback that says that was the wrong thing to do. However, if you trade back and wait five spots, you can learn that that was a mistake because you might not get him at that level. Right. And so learning pushes you to never get it. It's like the feedback in the system is censored and you can't learn that that strategy is wrong. And censored in this very asymmetric way. Asymmetric disconfirmation, Eric. Yeah, what I thought, uh, Cade, where you were going with this actually is, you know, something we all talk about a lot in research is that zero is a magic number because there's a lot of ways you can get zero. So let's talk about that here. One possibility is Thomas is zero because, number one, he was the 80th lineman and no one would ever take him at four. That's one possibility. Another possibility of zero is that the Giants were never going to take alignment and, and the three picks before them were not going to take alignment. That's another way you could get a zero. And so there's actually multiple paths to this erroneous prediction or mock inspired prediction that could come. It's, and so that's what I love about it is if you predict zero, there's you would have to assume lots of things would get you to zero. Nobody would trade up for him. He's right. not the first uh, offensive tackle. It's, it's just an interesting way to think about it. So tell me something about the Giants. Did they do a bad thing or a good thing? Well, the Giants have done an unconventional thing, I think, three with their, their, their first-round pick three years in a row now, right? So um, either, either they know what they're doing or they don't or somewhere in between, right? But, I mean, this is the third year in a row that they've made – because, like, we were talking the same thing last year when, when they took Daniel Jones at number six. And traded up for him. And traded Daniel up for Jones, him. right, right. You know, you know that um, a, you know, did they really believe that Daniel Jones was the best quarterback available then? If and if that was their guy, did they even need to trade up? Given that again, with Andrew mm -hmm. Thomas, the common expectation. If you really was a diamond in the rough that only they thought they had a high opinion of, then why couldn't they just kind of wait and get him the next? You know, there's a the chance he would have fallen, so they could have actually traded down to get him. So my, uh, the main question I have coming out of the draft is how well we understand position value. Mm -hmm. And by we, I mean the world, but even if some observer, analytically oriented observer, if the football Twitterati understood positional value, when would executives within the NFL share that same understanding? And um, by position value, I mean, should you ever take a running back in the first round? Should you ever take yeah. an interior lineman in the first round? How much do you really like the Ravens pick taking an off-ball linebacker, even though they have a big need and they got a great guy, 
at good value. So the, the, as opposed to a lot of folks would say, look, the, the most valued positions other than quarterback, obviously, are, you know, passing related positions, the wideouts, cornerbacks. And so you, these guys would argue you'd never waste this high value draft capital on the low value positions. And it, some people are very strongly about this. And what's true is we don't have a good estimate of the of position values. We have philosophies, we have disagreements, we have strong opinions, but we don't have great systems. Moreover, you have to know, I'm, I'm doing the thing I hate when we do, actually. I'm, I'm saying I'm kind of nihilistic. I think we don't have the data because you need a whole system that says if you don't draft a guy, you got to get him some other way because you got to have a certain number of interior linebackers. If you don't draft an interior lineman, you got to get them late rounds, you get them a free agency, you re-sign your guys. What is the distribution of talent available for every position by every channel over multiple years? It's a really, really complicated problem. And it's becoming increasingly talked about, and it seems really important in making optimal optimal draft decisions. Well, you said two things that struck a chord with me, uh, Kate. First of all, let me talk about the second one you just said, which is a lot of people when they're grading the draft, for example, when they grade, let's say, the Indianapolis Colts, they're saying, well, the Colts didn't have a first-round pick. So how could they – well, they got DeForest Bruckner, who's a top-five Pro Bowl guy – it, with their first round pick. So I, so one thing, this was when you just mentioned, there are other ways to get players. You have to include, and this mm-hmm. is a topic I know you wanted to talk about, you mentioned a little bit, what's the likelihood that someone you're going to draft is going to be as good as this guy? Like, would you, I mean, what's the odds that the 20th, 18th pick in the draft or wherever the Colts draft at eight, nine, whatever, it's going to be as good as Bruckner, who's a five-time All-Pro guy. So you've yeah. got to count that in. The second thing you have to count in is what we also mentioned is when you say a lineman versus a running back, there's another factor. The lineman knows the narrative. This lineman could be around for 10, 12, 14 years. That running back is not going to be around for 14 years. You know that. I mean, unless they turn out to be the next coming of Emmett Smith. And Emmett Smith wasn't Emmett Smith the last five years. So the other thing about a lineman is they, the narrative is, well, they've solved that position for the next 10 to 15 years. Same with quarterbacks. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that kind of touches upon the point, the kind of the interesting observation I was thinking about as we were discussing this is that we're kind of talking a lot about, you know, if teams have an immediate need for a skill player or something like that, should they just draft that position versus the first best player available? Because, you know, some of the most unconventional, the, 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 the drafting choices that we're talking about for this latest draft is actually two teams that drafted a position, a very valuable position that they did not actually need. Both the Philadelphia Eagles and Green Bay Packers took two of the top five quarterbacks available. Um, And those are teams that, you know, I mean, coming into the draft, nobody thought they were going to take high, high draft pick quarterbacks because they kind of have their draft. They have their quarterback situation answered for now. Yeah. Right. And and a born quarterback, do you, uh, you, you might be thinking further into the future than you would a running back. Well, they're good. there's a boring version from the Saints as well. They took an interior lineman who is considered by many to be the top interior lineman available, but they have like all their interior linemen are quality, young, set. It seems like, why did they take this guy? So mm-hmm. there, it's a really interesting, it's a really different, it, different philosophy by some teams. Eric, you had something to say about the number two pick, Chase Young. Many people are anointing him, you know, instantly. You know, this guy's a, a, a no, no fail, uh, all pro kind of edge rusher. What, what's your take here? 
Yeah, it was an article I read just actually before us coming to taping here, if you'd like. It's that um, Chase Young's father, very interesting. Chase Young was telling this story that he's six foot five. He's had his growth plates measured, and they're saying there's still room for growth. Um, his father's six foot ten, but his father well, went. What, to, what, what are growth plates, and how? What do they tell you about room for growth? Well, for example, you can measure someone's bone structure, their hands, their legs, etc., and see whether their bones are fully fused, which means you're unlikely to grow anymore. And so they do this when they measure children all the time to see what your projected height is going to be or have, you know, let's say also they measure it in some cases, let's say someone stopped growing at a young age, what's the rationale for it? And they're trying to see, are you actually stopped growing? And in Chase Young's case, he's currently six foot five. Um, They're saying he's not done growing. And what this article was about was, could he end up getting too tall? Because, you know, for a defensive lineman, part of it's leverage can you get low enough? Um, you know, they bring up, you know, they always like to bring up the one person who is really tall and really successful. That would be Julius Peppers. That's the example they like to give at six oh, foot. Six. Ed Too Tall Jones. How can we talk about defensive linemen being too tall without using Ed Jones? <laughs> yeah, they use the more recent one. I guess uh, Mr. <laughs> Texas over here, Too Tall Jones would be one as well. But all I'm commenting hey, on quick, is random, they were just, yeah. Random thing about Too Tall Jones. I just saw this. I, as a Cowboys fan, one of the worst memories from a kid was the catch. The San Francisco. Well, it's over Ed Too Tall Jones. It's, it's, it's over a Too Tall yes. Jones. Yeah, but let's be clear. When I say over Ed Tuttle Jones, I mean he was the one rushing Joe Montana with his arms up, and the ball had to get over. He wasn't covering the receiver. He was covering Montana with his arms up. Um, I remember I can visualize him in that play. Um, But I was just pointing out, it made me start to think about optimal sizes of athletes and stuff. And I just wrote down a few things, like all the great tennis players now are basically between six foot one and six foot three. Um, you know, I'm talking about Djokovic, Nadal, mm-hmm. uh, Federer, uh, Theme, um, et cetera. You get some exceptions. Djokovic was taller than that. For he's not. Reason. He's six two. Huh. He's six foot two. Andy but, Murray's. But Eric, Eric, how much has that changed over time? Is that, oh, it's changed it, a huge amount. So what did it used to be? Well, Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, and Bjorn Borg are all between five foot nine and five foot eleven. Oh. Just okay, to show you, just to show you the height yeah. difference. And matter of fact, they were. And then uh, Joe, again, Joe, Nadal is the sorry. Federer is in thought of as the shortest. He's like six one. Nadal six one and a half. Uh, Djokovic six two. Annie Murray six three. Theme is six three. But then you get these guys who are like you know John Isner six ten. The problem is their hands are worse. They can't bend as much. They're susceptible to low shots. I can play in Wimbledon. That's about it. I started to think about <laughs> golf. I started to think about golf. Um, you could think, I mean, this is purely physics about the, you know, I'll call it the tightness of the swing motion. There's never been, I, I think the tallest major winner may have been ever, may have been Davis Love the Third, who I think is six foot four, but there's never been a six foot six, six foot eight uh, professional golfer, even though you would think maybe that person could generate greater power. Baseball is an interesting sport because certainly, um, you know, Maybe one of the greatest pitchers of all time, Randy Johnson, six foot ten, the big unit. Um, but we also have guys like Altuve, who's five foot. They could list him at five eight. He's five six. No, he's you know. not even five six. All right, so he's not even <laughs> five foot six. So I just started to think about: Are there optimal heights? And maybe Chase Young, if he grows, maybe the maybe the Redskins won't be happy if he becomes six foot eight. This reminds me of an analysis I ran on the draft years ago, and I'm not sure how well it holds up now. But I looked at. Uh, the career, NFL career of wide receivers as a function of their height. And um, it was an inverted U, almost perfectly symmetrical around six or six one. And it, it just said to me that this, this obsession with receiver height was kind of overdone. 
-hmm. that um, it may be what you're talking about, Eric, that the other qualities that might benefit from not being quite that strung out um, compensate for not having quite. The it's interesting so, that we've uh, I've done some data analysis on 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 college uh, uh, sorry pro uh, draft as a as a function of height, and the only position where height makes your probability of getting drafted, particularly at the given, given your, your high school information is quarterback. I knew you were going to say that people like a tall quarterback. They sure. really do. And we don't know whether that's a good idea. They just, they certainly just draft those, those tall it's, ones and they avoid the be, short ones. It's got to be overdrafted. Adi, I know that you've in the absence of actual baseball to watch. Hold on before we do that. Hey, ESPN's negotiating with South Korea to telecast yes. their baseball games. How about get baseball? It'll just have to be played in South Korea. <laughs> So do you think do you think people will watch and get into that? Like, what what do you know about South Korean baseball? Eric shaking his head. No, I, I'm going to say the opposite. I, I'm a guy who bikes home, and in the in the spring and summer, I stop in Narberth Park, right, a little park near my house. And if there's a baseball game, I will pull my bicycle over and I'll sit there for half you hour. Like, you'd be like a high school game, or a high a American game. Legion high school, a summer game. I don't care. <laughs> I just I love to TV sit and watch the baseball. will not be exactly zero, Adi. I give you that. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, and I mean, I, 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 I personally would watch it and will watch it if it does come to ESPN. But I, I agree. I mean, it's not going to no. at all kind of it's, – it's not going to be in the same magnitude as the kind of ratings that baseball uh, – Major League Baseball would. And Major but League yeah, Baseball, or, once it comes he, back, will immediately just – Oh, immediately. Right, immediately. right, right. Adi, you've got some – You've been crunching baseball data for some kind of baseball-based entertainment. What have you got? What have you discovered? Yeah, because, you know, I can't do COVID all day long, and I, you gotta, you got to replace the baseball fix with something. So I basically – I took the play-by-play -play data from 2019, and I just sort of wondered some basic questions and see if I could ask them. So one of the things that we as sports analysts in baseball have really um, changed the way we think about players is we, we, we like to think of their performance absolutely out of context. And this is how we evaluate players is if you, we just yep. take your, your base rate events and we work them up and we turn it into a war number uh, or some number that measures your quality. And we believe that the whole world should be focused on, only on those and, and, and ignore the actual context that it Well, I, I mean, I, I, I will just push back on that. We have a whole bunch of statistics in baseball that are all about trying to take into account context. True, true just, but we, we do we, try and bifurcate our analysis yeah. either into kind of a context-free thing like war Versus like a win probability added. added. But, but how much do those generally get talked about? But even, and one of the reasons we, do, we, we don't like it is it doesn't predict well. So a player who's, who, with a couple of exceptions, I'm looking at you, Shane, when you're thinking of, of Ortiz right now, players very rarely, almost never, show an ability to, to perform well in certain circumstances in future right, years. Right, like that's the, the, the leverage, that's right, that's right. And that's basically the reason why we don't do it. But so one of the things I went back and I said, let's, let's look, every home run when it's hit pro produces value which can be basically the, the start of the at bat there's a certain expected number of runs after the at bat there's a certain expected number of runs and there were a certain number of runs scored at, in the at bat and you combine them and you can get the the net value of an of a home run and what i did that for every player i summed them up and it it's a, a very straight linear function with a number of of home runs but what I did was I looked to see which players were really out of whack. So players that over-contributed or under-contributed. Now, how does this happen? It means that you either, to over-contribute, you hit home runs and in very important situations with men on base, with, with multiple outs. So hitting home runs with two outs and the bases loaded is the best you could possibly do. Or with two men on, runner in first and second, and hitting a home run, that's great. Hitting home runs with, with, with uh, no outs 
and bases empty is the least value you can possibly add to, to a, for a home run. So it turns out I found two players, and it's interesting. Um, both hit 29 home runs. One contributed the equivalent value of about 24 home runs, and the other the equivalent value of about 35, based mm. only on context. And I thought that was interesting. The, the player who produced the very low amount of value was Mookie Betts. In other words, he was hitting home runs when, frankly, they just didn't add that much value to the team. Which That sounds like the 2019 season. In a, in a for the Red Sox. Yeah. And the one who did extremely well was Runan Odor, who was a second baseman and for, for the Rangers. And he was hitting them where they mattered. And so he was hitting his 29 home runs are effectively 35, and bets were effectively about 24. That's a huge swing. Two, two um, clarifying questions. One, to what extent is – uh, that situation is what is in his batting order of affecting a, a bit absolutely so a leadoff yeah. guy would have fewer opportunities right? they would have very few exactly okay. more more important what talk to talk to us about the process you would use to identify whether those outliers are reliably different or just noisy because in a big sample you're going to have uh, two outliers right yeah well, you're going to have somebody on the on both extremes right? or i guess another way of paraphrasing that question is it would be interesting to kind of go back through like like back pat like in 2018 2017 mm-hmm. is like because I, I assume odor and, and, and boots are kind of about bets are kind of the um the um those are extremes. extremes right well so i picked them because, not because they were of, yeah uh, they were plus or minus I, five every year I, I picked them not because they were the most extreme they were people who were more extreme uh, but they had the same number of home runs. So ah, I, yeah. I chose them because they were exactly at the same. So the systems would think of them as equal. And the reason why it really matters to me, before I answer your question directly, Cade, when we think about most valuable, what does it mean to be most valuable? Does most valuable mean you contributed on the field to winning the most? In which case, Odor's 20, uh, 29 yeah. home runs were way more valuable than Betts's. But when, we, but when the writers go through it, they don't tend to even know or even think about these things. So to answer your first question, the way I do it, Shane is right. It'd be nice to look at last year's data. I could do that. But what I did basically did is fit the, fit the regression line, which predicts value as a function of home runs. And then you look for individuals who are far away from that regression line. Just, just you can a calculate your question, Audie. Did you measure value as runs scored or did you measure value as additional win probability? Because why, why not would... do it with win probability? That's an extra layer that would add. I need a whole table of win probability calculator and I didn't. Okay. No, but I mean, I, it kind of returns to this more general question about most valuable. I, I, I love this discussion because to me, most valuable player, um, should involve retrospect, a retrospective mm-hmm. like who was actually most valuable to their team. But your point of view is that like a lot of the sort of statistics like war and stuff like that are designed to be kind of context, neutral. more context yeah. neutral because they prospectively make for a better evaluation. And I totally agree with that. But, you know, we should focus more on retrospective kind of measures when yeah. we're doing things like most valuable player. So, fellas, we're down to just the last few minutes. I'm very curious to hear if there are any updates on The Last Dance, the documentary on the Bulls championship in the last season, Jordan's last year with the Bulls. Episodes three and four dropped last night. So I watched them. I love them. Um, they focused on Dennis Rodman a lot, and they also focused on uh, Phil Jackson a lot. But what it merely made me think about is, you know, maybe about five or six years, it's about as much, maybe even more, but as much as you could expect to get out of a dynasty. You know, I think about the Warriors basically were great for five years. I personally think their dynasty's over. I think the Heat had a four or five year run. The Lakers in the early 2000s had a four or five year run. The only teams that have really been able to do it for extended period of times people forget in in michael jordan's first championship 
He beat Magic Johnson. Now, Magic, that's 11 years after Magic Johnson's first finals that he was in. And he had five championships at the time. You could say the Tim Duncan Spurs, they, they had a large gap. But the, the thing that struck out, stuck out to me, this is what the episodes were about, is, you know, eventually things run their course and maybe a five-year dynasty that, that might be the as long a period as we can expect. That's what stuck yeah, I mean, out to me they, about they, last they year. Sort of, I mean, you know, to the extent that they can build in structural ways of kind of, of, of evening the playing field, they do, right? Most leagues do kind of have sort of parity-inducing measures that should have an effect over time, which makes kind of particularly long dynasties like the Bulls, you know, extra impressive. Though, again, you know, I, I think they uh, – the way you get an extra long dynasty is the pairing of a really great coach with a really, you know, like once in a generation kind of player. So it, it, it's, we, we know why it extended beyond the usual time, but. So still. I'm glad there are six episodes ahead of us because it's been such great TV, but speaking of um, long lived athletic phenomena, I understand Mike Trice Tyson is training again. I just read an article that suggests he plans. He says it's exhibition bouts. Um, he purely wants to do it to raise money for charity. But again, it brings up a question we could talk about in future episodes. Um, in which sports is 53 still possible? And you how, know, how old was Tom Watson when he almost won the 59? He missed a oh six God. footer uh, for, <laughs> for par 59. Uh, Sam Snead won a tournament at age 53. Phil Necro was pitching into his late 40s. Warren yes. Moon was mid to late 40s. Gordy Howe was over well over 50 when he continued playing in hockey. So it's George possible Foreman. In some how sports. old was George Foreman? George Foreman was 46 when he won the title. That's been another episode of Wharton Moneyball, a virtual episode this time around. We're going to be doing this weekly. For the foreseeable future, hope you can join us. Thank you for listening. We'll be back between now and then. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Department of Statistics at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm about to have an interview with Ben Cohen who is a sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal. He writes about the NBA predominantly, and he also covers the Olympics, which is not this summer, but hopefully next summer, and other topics that don't involve extraordinarily athletic people at all. His very first book, The Hot Hand, was just released, and I'm really delighted to have him joining me today. So, Ben, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, it's great to have you. Um, I uh, got a, a pre-copy of The Hot Hand, and I finished it really quickly. It's a great read. I just want to recommend it to all our listeners. And what I hope to do today is try to cover, you know, the book in, in its, not, obviously not its entirety, but I want to start by asking you, well, you know, how did you end up a basketball reporter writing this particular book and um, of all the possible books you could write? Well, I think those are two um, sort of different questions. Um, you know, I, uh, I have been uh, the NBA reporter for the Wall Street Journal for five or six years now. Um, in fact, I've never covered an NBA finals that the Golden State Warriors were not in. Um, this was going to be the first, but I, who knows if there's going to be an NBA finals this year. But um, let's be hopeful. <laughs> uh, well, a couple of years ago in 2014 and 2015, I wrote two stories about um, the phenomenon of the hot hand. And I had never really thought about it before then. I think like most people on earth, I had my own brush with the hot hand and I assumed that it was real. Like I had no reason to think otherwise. Um, because you experienced it in particular. Because I experienced it and because I had seen other people experience it. I think that is sort of 
um, the magic of this, the hot hand as a phenomenon, which is that we've all seen and felt the hot hand, which is what made these, um, this, this classic 1985 paper, um, you know, such a, you know, delight, like a, a contradiction. It was so great. And it's, it's because it found that there is no such thing as the hot right, hand. So let, let's, let's just slow down just for a minute. So the hot hand, in particular in basketball, they call that the zone. Um, we all kind of know it. You describe in your book when you were in it, I think it was in junior high school or was it high school that you were actually out on the, the court and you just couldn't miss. And that was your, your brush with the hot hand. I've been, been played baseball my whole life and I feel like I've been in the zone. Um, but then you went and started to look at the research. So how did you, you, you were mentioned a, a famous paper by Gilowich, uh, Valone and Tversky. Um, and their, their paper is essentially claims that the hot hand is really just a, a fallacy. It's just chance variation. And then what looks to be moments where you're very successful is just the vagaries of chance. Then my first question to you is, how did you discover that paper? I actually found it through um, a couple of papers in 2014 and 2015 that um, suggested that maybe that seminal paper that suggested the hot hand was a fallacy had gotten it all wrong and that ah. the fallacy of the hot hand was the fallacy. And so um, in writing about those two studies, um, of course, I went back and read the famous 85 paper and talked to um, Tom Gilovich, the lead author of the paper, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, sort of read everything about it. And it's this beautiful, like, incredible paper, like there's a reason why it's in the canon of behavioral economics. Um, it uses basketball as this really wonderful excuse to explore the rest of the world, which is what I try to do in the book as well. Um, but it's this, it's, it, it really started this entire literature about the hot hand. I mean, there have been hundreds of papers about this phenomenon in the 35 years since then. And the two that I wrote about, um, I thought anyway, made the biggest strides in um, maybe changing our minds about the hot hand. And so I just found this entire narrative to be so irresistible because it was something that we all thought to be true, only to be told that it wasn't, only to realize that maybe it actually was. And it was a story in which the main characters were Nobel Prize winners and NBA superstars. How could you get much better than that? How can you? All right, so what we're gonna do, we're actually come back to the story of the, the, the technical story behind the hot hand. But first, I want you to tell, us, tell me a little bit about your book, which interestingly enough, uh, to me, as a reader, I thought someone's going to write a book entirely about the hot hand. Great. The first research I ever did after finishing my PhD was an attempt to discover the hot hand. I got nowhere. Um, you were just, at Stanford when Amos Tversky was there. I, mean, I was there. Was yes, I was. I was there at, at Stanford to overlap with Amos Tversky. I was in the statistics department, so I didn't have a chance to intersect with him. But he was famous on campus um, as a personality and as a genius. The, the complication, of course, in studying the hot hand is that even though you and I might agree that, that and I th I've always believed that it existed, but I did understand that it was rare, that getting in the zone was something that didn't happen every day. And I also understood as a probabilist that long sequences of successes just happened by chance as well, which always led me to ask the much, what I was thought to be more relevant question, which is, can you count on the hot hand? Is there any way as a strategist to think to myself, yes, um, this person is hot. And in basketball, what that means is you change your play. So, so if you knew someone was hot, what would you do? And as a basketball reporter, how do, you, how do you see that actually taking place? Well, I mean, what you would do is you would try to feed that person the ball, right? Um, in fact, you know, this, this question of um, can, can hotness be a strategy is a really fascinating one. And I think it depends on whether or not we can predict 
when we are going to get hot, when we'll be in the zone. And, um, you know, I, I certainly could not predict that when I was a terrible basketball player, but I decided to pose that question to the greatest shooter in the history of the planet. And so I asked Steph Curry, do you know when you're going to get hot? And um, he thought about it for a little bit. And what he said, um, I thought was really interesting, which is that um, he doesn't know when it's going to happen or why or where or how it's going to happen. And I think that um, the hottest game of his life, this incredible performance he had against the New York Knicks in Madison Square Garden eight years ago is proof of that. Everything went wrong before this game. I mean, he, he had gotten into a fight the night before. He woke up $35,000 poorer. He missed the bus to the arena. The bus that he did take got pulled over on the way to mm -hmm. Madison Square Garden. I mean, if you were to ask him, is this a night when you're going to get hot? He probably would have said he would have played terribly that night, not like the greatest game of his life. But Maybe he said the conservation he of luck theorem. <laughs> he doesn't know when any of this is going to happen, but once it does happen, you have to embrace it. And I think that's sort of the, the neatest and the most fascinating way to think about it, which is that right. we can't predict it. But once it does happen, we um, you know we have to do everything in our power to try to take advantage. All right. Well, okay. Well, then let's let's push this a little bit. So supposing you know the hotness has a reverse, we call it coldness. So let's say that it appears that. Steph Curry is cold. Would you, as a, let's say you are the coach of the moment, there you are, and would you encourage your players to avoid passing to Steph Curry because he seems to be the mirror image of hotness? So I'm Steve Kerr right now. You can be, okay, you're Steve Kerr. You're, there I'm you Steve are. And, 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 and you've seen it. You've watched enough basketball to know that Steph Curry can go cold. I've watched enough ba basketball to know that that can happen. As a, as a mathematician, I would just say that's just chance variation. But now as a hot hand aficionado, an author, who happens to be Steph, Steve Kerr right now, what would you do? So the problem with this example is that Steph Curry happens to be a terrible example because Steph Curry, you actually always want to feed him the ball and you right. want him to shoot as much as possible. If Even we, cold, he's better than everybody else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. If, if we want to say like, you know, Draymond Green, who's actually not a very good three-point shooter, but he's made three or four shots in a row. Do you want to get him the ball? Or he's missed a few shots in a row. Do you want to get him the ball? Um, I think that, you know, probably not. Probably you want to get the ball to Steph Curry and you want the person with the highest percentage um, you know, over an entire season to be shooting. Um, but, but, but I think that, um, you know, th there's something else to be thinking about here, which is that there is this power and this force to the hot hand where, um, you know, someone like Steph Curry or the Steph Curry of their industry, not just basketball, but really anything. Cause this, this, this entire field of literature is not really just about basketball. It's about human behavior and it's about how we make judgments and decisions, which is why these brilliant economists spent so much time thinking about it. The question is like, when someone like that gets hot, what are the effects of it? And what I've come to believe is that there are real long-term um, effects to short-term momentum. You can like, they, what, what happens in a very finite period in, in, in 48 minutes of a basketball game can elevate your career and it can kind of change your whole life. It did with Steph Curry anyway. All right, so let's let's take the book apart a little bit because what I found particularly fascinating in the book is that while it opens and closes to a large degree with the mathematics and statistics of hot hands, particularly in the basketball context, almost everything in the middle has nothing to do with sports and, in fact, has very little to do with what you would might obviously call hot hands. It's one of the great – one of the featuring topics is a discussion of, uh, of, um, of uh, the, the um, Raoul Wallenberg, who was um, – just to fill in our listeners, who's, he's mostly unknown, but he saved during the Holocaust, you know, thousands of Jewish refugees and then Hundreds disappeared. Thousands, What's that? Yeah. 
hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jewish refugees and using his role as a diplomat in Hungary. And he disappeared right after the war. And you have a whole chapter talking about what happened to him. So it's a great chapter in and of itself. But why don't you explain a little bit about how you see that chapter fitting into a discussion of the hot hand? Yeah, to me, the, the point of writing this book wasn't simply to present all of the studies about the hot hand and show how our minds have changed over time. It was really um, also to illustrate some of the lessons in this really compelling saga to, to understand this kind of intuitive idea, this thing that we have all felt and seen for ourselves. Like, What are the, what are the broader takeaways from that? And one of them is um, the importance of, of better data is what I call it, not just bigger data um, or more data, but better data. And um, that is what brings us to, to the Wallenberg case, because um, the reason why we know a little bit more about what might have happened to Raoul Wallenberg after World War II is because um, of these two really interesting guys, Marvin Mackinnon and Ari Kaplan, who um, created a database of um, Russian prison records. Um, this is where Wallenberg was um, always rumored and suspected to be held long after the Soviet Union said that he was dead. And um, not until um, they actually got their hands dirty in the data were they able to say whether or not that was true, um, given the best evidence that was available. So the thing about the hot hand is that we all thought the hot hand was real. We all thought this thing was true. We just never really had the data or the evidence to support it. It was the same thing with Wallenberg. Many people thought that he was alive long after he was supposed to be dead. We just didn't have the data. Like it, it, it didn't say that. And so um, instead of just saying, here is um, this, this takeaway of the hot hand and why we now think this, I decided to show it with another story. And I think that using um, you know, human stories and putting human faces on these, um, these questions and these problems can really help us understand those insights a little bit better. And I think that there are stories like that sprinkled in throughout the book. I mean, in the same way that like, you can just say like, um, uh, randomness paralyzes the human mind and, and we have a really hard time wrapping our brains around randomness. That's true, but it's also easier to understand that when you think about this problem that like Spotify and Apple had a few years ago where they had to change their, change their algorithm, right? Because humans are so bad at understanding randomness. Like they, we, we have a really hard time um, thinking about how if we make a random playlist, sometimes that means you hear the same song twice in a row. Or you so hear the, the same, same artist, artist. Yeah. twice in Many a row. Times. And we don't, we don't want that, right? So what they had to do was they now evenly disperse artists over the course of a playlist to almost guarantee that you won't hear the same artist twice in a row. So essentially what they did was they tweaked their code to make it less random to feel more random. And that, it's just like that, that, that beautiful slice of irony that um, I think illuminates this idea um, that, that is endemic in this, in this fight to understand this single idea of the hot hand. Great. Now, there's a, another wonderful story, which actually illustrates sort of almost the reverse side of the hot hand um, about essentially farming. <laughs> there's this great chapter in the book about farming. So why don't you tell us how that book, what's in that chapter and how that connects to the hot hand as well? So in this chapter, um, I take a trip to the border of Minnesota and North Dakota, and I visit a fifth generation sugar beet farmer named Nick Hagen. And um, this is a chapter um, that comes right after the introduction of this 1985 classic paper from Gilovich, Bologna, Tversky. And we are supposed to think that there is no such thing as the hot hand. And I wanted to apply that to real industries and real people and see what they really thought about the mm -hmm. hot hand. And Nick is this really interesting figure because he believes in the hot hand, but in his line of business, farming, he can't behave as if he believes 
in the hot hand because if he bets the farm, he can kind of lose everything. If, if, if one patch of farmland happens to do well two or three years in a row, he can't reallocate all of his resources into that one patch of farmland. If soybeans do well two or three years in a row, he's not going to throw out his sugar beets and, and put everything he has into that year's crop of soybeans. And the reason why he won't do either of those things is because in his business, the single biggest determinant of success is the weather. He is at the mercy of chance. He really does not have all that much control um, of his future. He doesn't have all that much agency. And um, I think that is when it's important to recognize when there is no such thing as the hot hand. In the same way that um, believing in the hot hand can be powerful, um, not believing in the hot hand or not behaving as if you believe in the hot hand can also be powerful. Because if you do when there's not a hot hand, it can backfire and it can right. burn you a little bit. And um, so what he does, instead of chasing patterns, he has to trust principles. And I think that's sort of the, the, the philosophy behind index funds too, right? It's a lot of how we, even if we are, don't live on farms or or no soybeans from sugar beets. I mean, it's how we invest our money. It's how we make decisions. Well, there's a lot, a lot of similarity in these, in both these examples. So what you're saying about the farmer Hagen is that you're tempted to believe that your success, success is something that you've uh, walked your way into with good decision-making, with being hot, being good at it, and that that's going to stick around. But he's learned that it's base rates that matter and not his activities and things that are out of his control that matter. And in finance, we, we usually have the similar situation. If you're successful a few times in a row in your tr stock trading, you, you generally tend to get drunk on your own success that hotness and that you believe it's going to stay going forward when really it was just a manifestation of chance, uh, chance interactions and that you really don't deserve any of that. But in sports, we see the, 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 the problem of hotness is that is when we make, we change our behaviors to follow sequences of success, which are just that random. And that's leads, I think that where I want to go now, which is to kind of talk about, well, what is the hard evidence that suggests that this hotness is in fact something that is real, meaning it's, it, there's, it's something to it more than just the just chance. So in other words, I tossed a coin, coins of no memory, and I did that over and over again, and I located sequences of multiple six, heads in a row. That automatically, you don't predict that, 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 that when that happens, you, you're going to produ produce more heads in the future. Um, so we know that it's, coins don't get hot, but basketball players, we believe, do. So what Tversky tried to look into, and Gilovich and Vallone, is to look at the, the basketball data to see if there is hotness. And they concluded that there wasn't. Um, and that was the big surprise of the paper. So tell me- Or that there was no evidence of hotness, right? right exactly. Well, well, let me just, this is a, a refined point for statisticians, which is that, you know, that when something is big and you look hard for it, if something is going to be big, you shouldn't have to look hard to find it. And that failure to find something generally means that it's not big. So one of the mistaken uh, um, conclusions from, from that paper is to say that they show that something didn't exist. You, mathematically, philosophically, scientifically, you cannot prove a non-existence. What you can prove is that something isn't large. So when I, when I always talked about that paper, and I'd heard of it for many years, I always described it as the data for the hot hand shows, not that it doesn't exist because you can't prove a non-existence. It shows that it isn't big enough that, that it, it, well, it's more than it's not big enough. It, it's the size of it doesn't match with our beliefs. That's how, that's and I, how. And I, I think, and I think that's true even now. I think the, yeah. 
the hot hand is not the um, exaggerated fireball that we have in our imaginations from playing that arcade game NBA Jam, right? Yeah, I mean, what was it? What was it? What they say when they score? On fire, right? I mean, and it's NBA, on fire. Exactly. There's a reason we believe in this is because you know NBA Jam was one of the most successful, lucrative arcade games ever made. It made a billion dollars in quarters in its first year. I mean, it, it was ubiquitous. If you are of a certain age, if you're my age, if you're Steph Curry's age, you grew up playing NBA Jam. It was systematically right. drilled into you that if you make three shots in a row, you're going to make a fourth. Um, but, but what I think is so interesting about that paper now is that it was based on the best data available at the time. There was, there was one statistician in the NBA, this guy named Harvey Pollack, who worked for the Philadelphia 76ers. His name was Superstat. And he was the only person in the league who bothered tracking the chronology of shots. So shots in the order in which they were taken. And so if someone made three shots in a row, only he could tell you what happened on that fourth shot because only he bothered tracking what happened on that fourth shot. We now have much better data. I mean, that data now looks primitive. The data that um, researchers had in 2014 and 2015, let alone 2020, was not available to Gilovich, Valona, and Tversky in their wildest, nerdiest, wonkiest dreams. Right. They were working with the best stuff they had. So what we're able to do now is we're able to account for the shift in behavior that happens when someone mm -hmm. has the hot hand. So we know that the What do they do? What happens to them? They take harder shots, right? They take yeah. longer shots, riskier shots, crazier shots, but also the defense adjusts. They throw double teams at that person. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, it becomes um, both harder and easier to score. Harder because the defense has changed and you're throwing up shots that have less of a likelihood to go in. Easier because you could take advantage of that gravity and create shots and opportunities for your teammates. But what we now know is that once you control for that shift in shot probability, right, in, in the likelihood that you are going to make your shot, that, that, that um, players taking harder shots had always masked any sort of effect of the hot hand. And right. once you're actually able to, uh, to compute the likelihood of a shot going in, what research has shown is that there might be a small, very small hot hand effect, right? It's not, it's not huge, but it's also not nothing. So if you were to, uh, you know, be a coach again, um, do you think your strategy should be more focused on detecting the hot hand and taking advantage of it or recognizing that the opposing coaches will overplay the hot hand and you should take advantage of that? Well, I think they're actually one and the same, aren't they? I mean, if, if well, Steph Curry has made three shots in a row, he's going to draw a double team. And so I think if, if I am Steve Kerr still, right. uh, I'm telling Steph, if the shot is available to you, take it. But if one of your teammates is open for a layup, let's take advantage of that and get the two points, right? I mean, I think I think you both of those things, um, you know, well, can work to the Warriors' advantage. Well, I want to well, oh, certainly if you know. So what I'm trying to ask is, what do you think is a better is a well? Let's just let's do it one at a time. Do you think is an, it, there's enough misunderstanding of the hot hand, mis overestimating its size? Oh, sure. For you to actually get some value out of. Um, telling your players that when one of your players does really well, you can expect them to over, over guard and, and that you should, and that you should adjust your, your offense accordingly. And secondly, uh, you probably want to warn your own players that one of your, when one of the opponents seems to get hot, don't over guard that player because uh, it's just, it's more likely to just be trans variation. Is there any yeah. gain in that? I mean, um, well, probably. I mean, we're also probably talking about what do you want to do in like game seven of the NBA finals, right? Because right. if a player gets hot on like a January night in the third quarter, like just just go with the flow and, and, and get him the ball because it really probably doesn't matter all that much. Um, I, I, you know, this is sort of a cop out answer, but I think it really does depend on the circumstance and the environment. If it's Steph Curry who's getting hot, 
I, you know, if I'm Steve Kerr, I'm telling him to shoot. If I'm uh, Greg Popovich, I'm, I'm sending three guys at him and making someone else beat me. If it's Draymond Green, maybe you're daring that person to keep shooting. I think it really does depend on the person um, and the situation and the environment and, and the stakes uh, for everybody involved. I mean, I think that really changes the incentives for everybody on the court. Okay, so let's now fast forward to 2014-2015. It's already 30 years past the publication of Tversky's paper and Gilowich and Valone, which, which is remarkable, some... right? The fact that this paper is still being discussed 30 years later. Yeah, it's, it is remarkable. It's remarkable because even though we've had so much, it, the truth is, is that the, the data that's come out, the much better data that has come out since then, has never pointed to a substantive, substantive hot hand effect. Although there has been a couple of attempts to show something that is actually actionable. I would like to make a very big difference between existence and, and effect size. So something is, is exist if its effect is bigger than zero. The effect size is actionable if you can actually use it to your advantage and, 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 and make a difference. Um, the classic example, um, as we just talked about, is do you feed the player who has it or do you guard the player who on the other opponents who have it? Um, and, and does that strategy beat the neutral strategy, which kind of ignores it? And, and so one would argue that, that an effective, even if it exists, you still need to be able to use it in, an effect, in a way that matters. So let's go back 30 years. Now it's 2014-15. And uh, two other economists uh, revisited that paper. They were by the names of Miller and Sanjuro. Um, and they discovered an error. And I remember when this came out, because we actually talked about it on our radio show. And I remember looking at it for the first time. And I will confess, as a probabilist, who, someone who had looked at Tversky's paper, um, I never noticed that there was a problem. But I will defend myself in a very particular way. There weren't any equations in his paper. <laughs> and, and which is very common by when psychologists and economists write about, about mathematics. They just assume that certain things are sort of very straightforward and you don't need to actually write them down. But in this particular case, there was a problem. And, and if it had been written down, it might have been noticed, but I never bothered to write it down. We just trusted that they had done something that seemed very logical. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, these are two young American economists in Europe who were familiar with the hot hand literature and research and, um, you know, organized some of their own shooting experiments and were convinced that um, this was not uh, everything that it had been cracked up to be. I mean, they, like most people, still thought that the hot hand was real and they decided to do something about it. But only when they were um, coding the results of the three-point shootout using um, the, 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 the mathematical equations that had always been used um, right. to study the hot hand did they, did they pick up on this very subtle mathematical quirk that even like the brightest mathematicians in the world had missed for 35 years. And generally, and I will actually ask you to explain this after I do, because your mm -hmm. job is to explain yeah. complicated statistical yeah. formulas and biases to, um, uh, to unsuspecting people. Um, generally, what they found is that like we had thought about the hot hand wrong for all of these years, and that there was this negative uh, downward bias um, that, that has to do with what happens um, in like this finite sample. And um, the, the best way to sort of understand it is that it, if a 50% shooter uh, is, sh is shooting 50% after he gets hot, that had always been taken as evidence against the existence of a hot hand. When in fact, when you correct this statistical bias, it's actually evidence for the existence of a hot hand. Um, and you know, this was the first time I wrote about this paper was when it was a preprint, um, mm -hmm. and you know, it was just sort of circulating among statisticians and psychologists and economists. It's since been published in Econometrica. Its math has been rubber stamped. 
it's right mathematically and statistically. The question is how it applies um, to this entire field about the hot hand and what we should think about the hot hand now. And that's where I actually want to um, turn it over to you to get your perspective on this, because I know you well, yeah, I've actually, I have thought about it a lot. So I mean, I'll explain it. I have to be very careful to our listeners to understand what's, what's being said. So Ben basically said that if you're a 50% shoot, shooter and you shoot 50% while in a hot state, that's actually evidence for the hot hand, not against it. And that is technically correct, but you have to be very careful because what you're saying is if you shoot a long time, let's say 100 shots and go back and look at, at the times you got hot, if you were a 50% over the entirety of the 100, and you were still 50% in the hot sequences, that actually is pretty good. You'd actually expect it to be a little bit less than 50% in the, in the hot sequences. And it has to do with a little bit of, of bias in, in, due to the fact that, that the hot sequences, you're successful. And I'm not going to try to explain why the bias occurs. As I said, I, I, I defend the people for missing it because they didn't write down what they had done. If they had done something slightly different, there wouldn't have been bias. So if they had simply asked the person to shoot continuously until they're hot, say, 10 times, then if you shoot 50% in those situations, that's exactly what's expected by, by, without being hot. So it's a, it's a bias of the data and, and of what we call a statistical estimation procedure. And, and what Miller and Sanjuro was figure that out. But even when you're watching basketball, you can, you, you'll notice it. You, in your book, you mentioned that if you look at, at they were, they were three-point shooting contests that were been, been waged over many, many seasons. Uh, do they do them? And the, when, when do they do these three-point shooting contests? Oh, it's a three-point contest the night before the NBA All-Star game. So That's they were right. able to get footage on YouTube and, and this guy in Switzerland who had VHS tapes of every three-point right. shootout ever. And they coded all the shots for themselves. So basically, if you look at someone who shot, say, 30, 35% during all their, their uh, three-point percentages. And you go back and then you look at all the times they made, say, three in a row, how likely did they make the fourth? The fact that it would be impressive to make 30%, that would be evidence of hotness, not standardness. And that, that, that actually does apply. And so this bias is genuinely real. Um, so what Miller and Sanjura did was they fixed the bias. And what they showed was that the that once you do fix the bias, the evidence is, is goes from non-existent to slight. <laughs> That's right, really but, but 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 um, but slight, um, you know, broadly. I think like for for individuals and for specific people in specific situations. The effect is not slight. It, it can really be pretty powerful. And that's one of the things that, you know, it's, it's impossible to predict who it's going to happen to or when or, or like what those effects are going to be. But um, I think there is other research, um, not about the math and the, the, the statistics, but um, about the psychological effects right. um, and, and about how hits happen and um, creativity sort of happens beyond basketball that shows that like th this hot hand phenomenon is there's an awesome power to it. There's a reason why we are so drawn to this. And it's not simply because of um, the statistical bias. It's because there's a lot here at work, right? Yeah, well, actually, Ben, it, you, it's good that you pointed up because it was published in a psychology paper, the original Gilowich, Villon, and Tversky, because for them, it is a, 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 a psychological phenomenon. It's the cause. It's essentially a confidence or, or some alignment of factors that gets us to be hot. It's very different than when I like to describe the Daniel Murphy event. So for those who don't remember, Daniel Murphy is this Met second baseman who was a nobody for an entire season. Then all of a sudden the playoffs come along and he becomes a hit, home run hitting monster. And so I remember when this was going on. And everybody was talking about, is he hot? And for those of you who read the hot hand paper, how can you say he's hot, right? He can't possibly be hot. But he was too good. 
to be hot. I mean, to just be, that was, it was too many home runs over too short a period of time to explain by chance variation. So then the question is what caused it? And we've had now several years, we've had years since that event. And Daniel Murphy has been a different person. He never came back to the original Daniel Murphy. And I think what you're pointing out is that the, these are transformative events. I think that's right. And that, you know, the original Daniel Murphy, or maybe not the original, but a proto Daniel Murphy was right. Steph Curry. I mean, that right. game in Madison Square Garden was not a one-off for Steph Curry. It was an epiphany. It really changed his life and it changed the fate of the Golden State Warriors. And in many ways, it changed the future of the entire NBA and basketball in general, because the sport has been revolutionized over the last eight years. And some of that has to do with the Warriors and Steph Curry himself realizing that he was capable of much more than he had been able to prove so far in his NBA career. That was the game that sort of suggested the only way to take advantage of his unique talents was to allow him to do things that nobody had ever done before. That's a great way to, for us to conclude. I think it's a great message at the end, and it applies really, really widely. So, Ben, thank you so much for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. It's, uh, I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School's Department of Statistics, and we just enjoyed a, a wonderful half hour talking to Ben Cohen about his new book, The Hot Hand, which I encourage all of you to go out and read. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. We have a special interview this uh, day with uh, Keith Law. Um, Keith Law is a senior baseball writer at The Athletic, um, which is one of my favorite sports uh, online magazines. And before joining The Athletic, he was a senior baseball writer for ESPN Insider. Previously, he spent time as a special assistant to the general manager of the Toronto Blue Jays, handling all statistical analysis. And before that, he wrote for Baseball Perspectives. He's one of the you know, longest running statistical, analytically minded baseball um, thinker. And he has a new book. And the new book is uh, recently released. It's called The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. And the book is out, and I encourage you to, to purchase it and buy it and read it. And he's joining me by Zoom. I'm Professor Adi Weiner. Um, so, Keith, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, it's great to have you, not, on, not on, uh, in our studio, but in our home locations as, as we all await the beginning of the baseball season in whatever form that takes. I know that has uh, left us kind of uh, high and dry here, but you, of course, have a, a great new book out, and which gives us all something to read. I've actually had a chance to, to got a pre-copy, and I finished it, and it's, it's, uh, it's a stirring read. It, it, it talks about really two, sort of two subjects and what we might call behavioral psychology and its intersection with baseball. So tell me a little bit about how you decided to write this book. So the genesis of this book, obviously I have a bit of an economics background anyway, um, academic, on the academic side, uh, including an MBA. And so I've long had an interest in reading sort of economics and somewhat business-minded books, not so much popular business, but more, again, the more academically oriented books in those particular domains. And this book, the book that inspired this book was, of course, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, which was recommended to me by someone who is a front office executive was with Houston at the time. He's now with the Orioles. And he said at the time, everyone they brought into Houston was asked to read Kahneman's book. And he said, you'd probably enjoy it. He was correct. I thought the book was tremendous. Uh, I don't think it's a great book for everybody. I think it presumes a bit of some economics or psychology background mm -hmm. before you go into it. 
which is not a criticism. It's just not a book for everybody. And anyway, so after reading that and reading many other books that are sort of in that same vein, I was trying to incorporate it more into my writing anyway, and had the idea to try to write a book that would explain many of the same concepts, but in much more plain language using examples from the baseball world, which of course could work the other direction too. It means you could, uh, I could go back and review a lot of interesting stories in baseball history and look at them through an entirely different lens. I didn't think That's anybody right. had, had done that before using cognitive biases and illusions or other fallacies from behavioral economics to try to explain outright bad decisions or just mistakes from throughout baseball history by multiple different types of decision makers. Well, I have to say, I love it. It is in vain with what I'm trying to do as a mathematician and as a statistician, which is to teach statistical concepts, computer concepts, mathematical concepts through sports and baseball in particular. And this is a way to teach economic concepts through sports. And so mm-hmm. I just actually recommended your book to my son, who oh, wants to learn great. a little bit about baseball, you know, about psychology and, mm-hmm. and baseball is, is you know, is, he, he loves. So it's a great marriage. So let's take us through a particular tantas a particular example. So I uh, don't enjoy this period in history. This is the 2001 uh, Arizona, uh, New York uh, World Series. I'm as a Yankee fan. I did not like the ending. But you talk a lot about uh, uh, how we look at the outcome and fail to evaluate properly the performances because we know what happened at the end. Right. And that is outcome bias, which I think of everything I explained in the book might be the easiest one for people to understand intuitively, which is the idea that we often judge a process by its outcome. And it is hard for our brains to accept or acknowledge that a good outcome can come from a bad process or that a bad, bad process can yield a good outcome and a good process can yield a bad outcome until I guess if you stop and think about in your own life, there are probably many, we could all come up with examples of, I did everything right and it didn't work. That is essentially outcome bias in a nutshell. And in Brenly's, Bob Brenly's case, the manager of the Arizona Diamondbacks in 2001, he did everything wrong and it still worked. Right. And so and, in sports, when you win, you, you know, you win. Right. You're so. a genius, right? He's a genius. He pressed right. all the right buttons. That's one of That's the right. cliches we hear so often. I mean, I guess if you consider use Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling as much as possible, a button. <laughs> yes. He kept pressing that button and as it turned out, it worked. Both of those guys answered the bell every single time. But Brenly repeatedly made pretty fundamental uh, and often quite damaging mistakes throughout the course of the series, putting Tony Womack at a very low on base percentage at the top of the lineup, thus maximizing the number of times he'd come to the plate, uh, having the number two hitter, usually Craig Council, who was a decent hitter, uh, sacrifice bunt frequently in front of Luis Gonzalez, who had 57 home runs that year. So, you know, bunting a runner from first to second just so he can score on a home run, not really the ideal strategy. And then I think the thing most people would remember if they watched that series in real time is Brenly's miss and overuse of Young Young Kim, who was not really capable of getting left-handed hitters out well enough anyway, and obviously his performance particularly suffered in that series. All three of those things, any of those three things, could have been enough to tip the balance of the series in favor of the Yankees. I think it's a testament to just how good the Diamondbacks team was particularly how good Johnson and Schilling were, that they managed to win in spite of Brenly's in spite of blunders. Right. Let, let me actually uh, focus on, on some of those things because sure. we, you, list, you describe what he did now, and I almost feel like I'm using hindsight bias mm-hmm. to imagine that given that we've, we have 20 years of advancement in statistical analysis in sports, and mm-hmm. I think at, those, at that time, and you'll have to flesh this out a bit, 
But what Brenly was doing was not necessarily what other managers were not doing. I mean, he was doing, I think he was managing somewhat conventionally or, and you would know, perhaps he was already way behind the times. I mean, this idea of, of not, you know, the leadoff and the on-base percentage, these are ideas that were just becoming well-known around 2000. I knew at the time, so I was still, uh, gosh, three months away from beginning my career in baseball at that point. Mm-hmm. I was writing as a freelancer for ESPN and Baseball Prospectus at the time. So I knew what I was seeing was not optimal. And there were some people in front offices, I think most notably folks in the A's front office, but not just them, who mm-hmm. also recognized that what Brenly doing, was doing was kind of not very smart. And it was not prevalent. Our way of thinking was not prevalent. Now, today, it's much more egregious, right? And I don't think the outcome bias issue would play as much. If Brenly managed a series like that and still won, there would be far more mainstream media coverage that was critical of Brenly, that was praising the team and saying, yes, they won, but that's progress to me. The fact that there are more people now covering the sport, because everyone inside the sport, I think, at least on the front office level, would recognize Brenly screwed up a lot. Now, not necessarily at the field manager level or the coach level or even player level, where I think it's more mixed, but the front office level for sure. But the fact that we're seeing such a shift in the tenor of coverage of the sport to me is a big positive because obviously getting you know, accurate and rational media coverage of anything, shall we say, is kind of necessary in this current environment. And we don't see enough of it. But just go, thinking about Brenly, so Brenly was, we should re- with the knowledge of what happened, he yeah. won. But if we take that away, everything he did was wrong. And, and, and most people today agree. But at the time, I'm not sure what he was doing was particularly with those field managing decisions were, were that egregious. But let's scroll a few years later to Grady Little. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, their series against the Yankees, the Red Sox lost. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's a tendency then, of course, to again view the outcome because he lost. What he did was bad. And of course, what he did was, was, pull, was fail to pull Pedro Martino. But you actually... Uh, learn a slightly different lesson because I think what he did was actually bad. And you talk a little bit about um, you, what you call status quo bias. So why don't you explain that in, the, in its application here? Sure. And just to, to, to your point too, what I try to do throughout this book is make sure we're only talking about decisions with information that was readily available to the decision makers at that at time, time, right? Yeah. If we have new data today or new philosophies that, they, that were not known or were not widely known at the time, it's less fair to criticize the decision maker. We can still talk about the decision, obviously, but you can't make a decision based on information you don't have, right? So that's, I do try to separate that out. And in the case of Grady Little in that playoff game, game seven of the 2003 ALCS between the Red Sox and the Yankees, uh, Little did have quite a bit of information in front of him that would have said to take Pedro Martinez out from visible signs of fatigue to the way the Red Sox had managed Martinez's workload throughout that season to try to keep him healthy and the limited number of times Pedro had gone that deep into a game. And I believe Little actually went out to the mound with the full intention of taking Pedro Martinez out. Pedro obviously, we know for a fact, based on subsequent comments by both men, that Pedro said, nope, I can stay in the game, I can do this. And then at that point, the little shadow of doubt that we call status quo bias probably showed up on Grady Little's shoulder and said, leave him in. Status status quo bias. Quo, so, so can you explain just for our listeners yep. exactly what status quo bias means? Sa- status quo bias is your brain's incorrect assumption that doing nothing is somehow inherently less of an act, less impactful or less risky than doing something. 
it is that feeling that, well, if I don't do anything, it's that I quote Rush in the book, right? If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. That's essentially status quo bias, right? The idea that well, I'm just not going to do anything. Yeah, but that, that is a decision not to do something. And that is still an active choice. You can, may feel like you've not done anything. You may feel like you've done no harm. I think that's ultimately what your brain is telling you. But in fact, that is not accurate. That is generally not an evidence-based way of making decisions. An evidence-based way would say, look at the status quo, which is an active choice, and then look at any of your choices for change and weigh each of those equally. You should not give the status quo any particular, particular benefit. All right, so there's, there's, you really treat most of the most important, I think the most important of all the psychological biases, but why don't you talk a little bit about sunk cost fallacy? Yes. Um, because this is, this is one that, that, uh, that is poorly understood and leads mm-hmm. to very bad decisions. So explain that one first and then show, explain how, how it's used, in, it's failed, how it shows up in baseball, particular when it comes to long contracts. So the sunk cost fallacy is now that's very much from uh, shows up in classical economics too, and has carried over into behavioral economics. It it is the idea that um, you take into account money that you have already spent or committed to spend that is thus invariable into deciding what to do with maybe the object on which you're spending, which how much to use it or what to do with it. Uh, It comes up all the time in sports with guaranteed contracts, right? You don't, once you've signed Albert Pujols to an 11 billion year contract, right? And he yeah. reaches this point <laughs> where he is no longer an effective everyday player or Which an effective player Which was probably right after his second or third season. Yeah, in right? Yeah. I would say by the third season, yeah. he, was, he should have at least become a part-time player. And there have been years since the third season where he shouldn't, maybe shouldn't be on the roster at all. And I think it's pretty clear that the Angels and other clubs, Tigers are doing this with Miguel Cabrera to some extent, they are continuing to uh, make decisions on how much do I play this player or do I keep him on the roster at all based on how much they're paying the player. And that language permeates the coverage, particularly of baseball, right? They're not paying him $25 million a year to sit on the bench. They're actually paying him $25 million a year no matter what he's doing. They could yeah. be t- paying him $25 million a year to sit on his couch. The number is invariable. And so you should not say, how much are we paying this player? Oh, we're paying him that much? Well, then he needs to play more. The only thing that should determine how much the player plays is whether doing so is better for the team than whatever the alternative is. Whoever the, the other player would be who'd take some or all of Albert Pujols' at-bats, is he better? Okay, great. It doesn't matter if he makes less money. It doesn't matter if his contract is guaranteed or not. If he's the better option, the money to Pujols is already spent. I'm looking, right. I see in the Zoom, there's a bike behind you. Now, I yep. assume you do bike often, but that looks like a nice bike probably spent several hundred dollars, maybe more on that bike. <laughs> much that more. is not relevant <laughs> to how much you ride the bike, yes, right? You ride, right? you ride the bike because you like it, you find it useful, it's better for the environment, but not because I spent this money on the bike, so I got to use it more. I want to talk about um, what you call um, uh, essentially base, the base rate fallacy. This is mm-hmm. actually very close to a statistical concept about yep. how we reason under uncertainty. And uh, just to set the stage a little bit, one, uh, one of the lessons, there were several lessons that were popularized in baseball by the Moneyball book, movie, et cetera. One of, course, one of them, of course, was the re-emphasis on, on base percentage, but the other was in drafting. And the principle in, that, that at least came out of the Moneyball book was it's not smart, particularly for teams without money to waste, uh, to invest in uh, high school pitchers in the first round of a draft. Yet... 
what ends up happening is all kinds of biases seem to creep in. So you talk about this, um, this, this first, the first round label as mm-hmm. something that you that holds on, you hold on to that for years, even though you don't deserve it anymore. Once the data comes out that you really aren't as good as the label, the label still sticks with you. Yep. But also we kind of avoid, even though the base rates say one thing, we, set, we tend to ignore it with sort of special pleading like arguments. So tell us about some of those examples. Yes, I love that you use special pleading, by the way, <laughs> one of my favorite logical fallacies. <laughs> yeah. And you certainly see it all the time, yeah. uh, particularly where myths are concerned. So yeah, the first round of the draft comes up three separate times in the book. I talk about it with anchoring bias, that first round label, which actually the effect I found, at least in player development, was weaker than I had expected once I studied the subject. Oh, so you're basically saying that that you expected the the, the first round label to be attached to the player far longer than it actually seems to be. It's yes, attached, what I, but not what, as long. What I specifically looked at was that did the did first round players, particularly players drafted at the very end of the first round, were they more likely to get uh, possibly unwarranted opportunities, let's just say opportunities in general to play in the big leagues than players draft at the top of the second round because you would expect those players to be essentially the same in talent level. You know, there's a difference of just a few picks and the draft is certainly not so efficient that they go, players go exactly in talent order. And the effect was there, but not that significant. So that it comes up there, comes up in survivorship bias, but especially comes up in the base rate neglect discussion, which is probably my favorite thing in the book, at least because we still do it. This is a mistake that, uh, or a, a fallacious, fallacious type of decision that is still ongoing, which so is- explain, Why don't you explain it in this context? So sure. the base rate is, is uh, the frequency, and in your case, in this particular example, the frequency that first round high school pitchers turn into valuable commodities. Correct. And we can assess that by looking at the past. And what do we learn when you look at it? Uh, turns out, one, that the base rate, let's, let's refer to it as the success rate mm-hmm. of high school pitchers taken in the first round of the draft is significantly lower than the success rates for the other three major categories, high school position players, college position players, and I think most notably college pitchers. So you would expect major league teams to take commensurately fewer high school pitchers in the first round on a rate basis, but they don't. And they continue to take high they school still pitchers. Don't, even though they this still is an old don't. finding. Yep. Until... This is the sort of the interesting postscript that is ongoing, which is that last year's draft, the 2019 draft, we went as deep into the first round, I think it was the second latest ever, that we saw the first high school pitcher come off the board, after which we saw a number of high school pitchers drafted. So the ultimate number of pitchers taken in the first round, high school pitchers, was not really that much lower than usual, but the fact that they at least got backloaded in the first round was kind of interesting to me. And of course, I was writing the book as this happening and thinking, oh, maybe we're seeing something here. Right. This year's the we will have a draft this year. However, I have a feeling the 2020 draft will not be terribly useful as evidence either way because right. this year is obviously so different. Well, but there's I'm, no high school. There's no high school data to really look at. Right. Most so. uh, many players like near us, Nick Bitsko, who plays about a half hour from where you are right now, if that, maybe even closer. He never played a game. He never got to pitch. He threw a bullpen for scouts, and then the world ended. And there are high school pitchers elsewhere in the country who did get a few outings in, but not much. Scouts just did not get much of a spring. And my speculation has been, just as somebody who analyzes the draft for a living, I think we're just going to see a very college-centric draft anyway because teams have more data on those guys. Mm -hmm. So I just bring that up because it's going to be another year or two before we see if there's been an industry-wide shift towards taking high school pitchers later. And to be clear, my premise then or my my conclusion from what i did find in the study is that is not that teams shouldn't take high school pitchers ever you shouldn't take them in the first round because the opportunity cost 
of a first-round pick is higher. You've got a much better chance to get a player who will have some impact in the big leagues, including a college pitcher. You might be able to get an equivalent high school pitcher in the second or third round, maybe even paying him a little bit more, but not having the same opportunity cost of you could have taken another player with a higher base rate, success rate, likelihood of getting to the big leagues than the high school pitcher did. Yeah, well, high school pitchers are more expensive, relatively speaking, later in the rounds because they can threaten to go to college. Correct. They have leverage <laughs> that, that the college that players them, that largely don't have. Well, there's uh, an incredible number of uh, other examples in the book. We're not going to have time to do it. We have to, we have to sort of uh, bring our interview to, to a close. But I just wanted to ask you, Keith, what's next for you now that this book is out <laughs> and uh, baseball is uh, on hiatus? What are you up to in the immediate so future? I've written a few. I've still been writing for The Athletic at least once a week. Um, there will be a draft in probably somewhere between six to eight weeks from now. So I'm going to start turning towards some draft coverage. It will look very different this year than it has in past years, but they're still going to have at least five rounds of the draft. Typically I only cover about a hundred or so players, which is essentially three rounds worth. So it's been that I've been writing some feature ish stories. Uh, I've been, I wrote a piece with two pieces with, you know, Saris, my colleague at the athletic talking about how scouts and analysts view the various tools or grades that you'd see on a scouting report. So we're just trying 20. Yes, exactly. So we're, we're trying to be creative and continue to provide coverage with the hope that maybe by July or so we start to see games again. And I, even if they're just major league games, there's something for me to go out to see and potentially evaluate. Well, we are looking forward to reading what you write next. We're looking forward to baseball. And I wanted to thank you for joining me on this special edition of Moneyball, Wharton Moneyball. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Department of Statistics at the University of Pennsylvania. And I hope you join us in the future. Holding its line on a good line, and down it goes! The best golf coverage is on Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. How the world's greatest golfers. Tiger Woods. Phil Mickelson. Fred Couples. The best analysis. Tiger's going to have to get a little chip back on his shoulder. Unforgettable moments. Towards the left edge, and it goes in! It's the most listened to golf in the world. Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. Sirius 